This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Hello and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters, where we talk all things property, usually a little bit of a summary of the news, sometimes some advice and tips, and sometimes a little bit irreverent with a bit of craziness. But we'll just see how we go today. We've got uh, quite a bit of news in the media about a number of things, the market of course and what's happening and so forth, and that's pretty confusing to know how that's going. Uh, As well as that, we've got today a bunch of articles just from around the country looking a bit more regionally as to what's going on. And some of this has been, or a couple of these articles are related to social housing and kainga ora. And I thought I'd bring these to you because they're indicative of what can be done in areas and whether they can be done here as well. Uh, I'm not too sure, but it's food for thought. So this first article from the New Zealand Herald says that kainga ora buys seven tauranga City Council Elder Housing Villages for $17.2 million. So the deal with the Tauranga City Council also includes an agreement that the state housing provider will invest another $32.4 million in upgrading and redeveloping the villages over the next 25 years, the organisation said in a joint statement. And that's pretty amazing. The existing tenants will continue to be housed and the villages will also be redeveloped to add more dwellings and lift Tauranga's public housing stock. Council Commission Chairwoman Anne Holly said the sale, would, the sale would lead to better housing opportunities for current and future tenants of the villages and for those in the wider community most in need of housing. As a public housing provider, Kainga Ora is much better placed than we are to redevelop the villages and upgrade the units, which are all in need of some TLC. So that's great that they're doing that. The sale agreements have actually taken into account the current condition of the properties, which is probably not the best, and then those will just be um, improved over time. Uh, Looking at Wellington now, a prominent travel lodge hotel in central Wellington is for sale, and this is something that uh, will be interesting to see who buys this one. I'm not sure if you've been to the travel lodge at all. And... It's a four-star hotel and it's smack bang in the central Wellington. It's up for sale, but once it's sold, it could actually be converted into residential or student accommodation. The Travel Lodge Wellington is located between the Terrace and Lambton Quay and vendors are hoping for at least $30 million for the property. It's a 14-storey building and sits atop a six-storey retail block and has 132 guest rooms. Dean Humphreys of real estate marketing firm Colliers said as the travel lodge was available with or without its current management contract, the property had potential for a range of uses. In other words, a new investor could come in unencumbered by a lease to a hotel operator. The hotel could be upgraded and repositioned in the market or it could be converted to something like student or budget-focused accommodation. Other options would include converting to extended-stay self-contained apartments or residential whether it be temporary or transitional housing, affordable residential housing or a co-living concept. Quite interesting when a building of that size and scale comes up for uh, sale and what it could potentially be used for. It used to be known as the Copthorne, uh, for those of you who may recall, pre-2009 and now it's been rebranded to Travel Lodge ever since 2009. 
So the current offshore investor owners bought the hotel in 2016 and uh, now it's uh, the indicative pricing of 30 million plus on that. There's also like the 24-hour reception, lobby, restaurant, five conference rooms, leased car parks, gymnasium and a laundry. And this is being sold via international expressions of interest campaign just to make sure that they cover as much of the market as as they uh, possibly can and that closes on June the 9th. So as we're travelling around the country with a bit of news I thought uh, we would also have a chat about what's been happening, excuse me, leafing through the papers, just putting them in in the right order here. That uh, British TV entertainer Noel Edmonds, those of us who are slightly older may recall Noel Edmonds, he's bought rural properties near Nelson. Drawn by the region's positive energy, in his words, British television entertainer Noel Edmonds has bought at least three properties near Nelson. Two are located in Natimoti, a small rural settlement on the banks of the Motueka River, about 40 kilometres west of Nelson. I was there recently on holiday around about that area. Jennifer Dunbar, who co-owned Dunbar Estates with her husband John for more than four years, confirmed the Nati Multi property was one of Edmund's new acquisitions. The 16-acre site includes a vineyard, salad door and cafe, uh, and uh, homes.co.nz estimate put the property's value at $1.44 million, which I think would be pretty good by the sound of things. Dunbar says that Edmonds loves the property, wants to make it a community hub. He's very positive about it. I think he stayed around here and loves the Natimulti area. Another local said Edmonds was very excited about the community and said the presenter and his wife had bought at least three properties in the region. Staff understands Edmonds also bought Eden House at Natimulti, a luxury lodge valued at a little more than $3 million. Another resident said locals were wondering what Edmunds' intentions were in Ngāti Multi. Un- understandably, I guess, when someone comes in like this, some locals are feeling a little inquisitive and a, a bit anxious as to why one person would buy up so much property in a very short time. Via email, Edmunds said he and his wife had been drawn south by the positive energy of Nelson and Tasman. We appreciate that we still have a lot to learn about life in the Nelson area, but judging by the reaction of those I've already met in Motueka and, and Ngāti Multi, we're confident our new friends and neighbours will be very supportive. So there we go. That's a little bit of what's been going on there as well. If we head north up to Hamilton, the story here is is good news as well. They're going to turn 100 state homes into 300. Big plans for two of Hamilton's poorest suburbs. Again, just going back to the idea that bringing these stories may give us some ideas of what to do here in the Manawatu. So a push to revitalise two of Hamilton's poorer suburbs could see 100 ageing state houses replaced with 300 new builds. Now just before I go into detail, uh, if you've driven through some of our, I guess, state housing areas in recent times, uh, you may have noticed that the, they are fitting more properties onto the uh, the space where, where one may be replaced by three, and particularly around the Roslyn area that it's most noticeable, and they're just really nice-looking modern homes. Anyway, more details around the plans to develop the city's Fairfield and Enderley suburbs will be unveiled in July and come as some city leaders voice concern over the impact housing intensification and what they say is human rabbit hutches are having in established neighbourhoods. However, Hamilton City Council, together with Kainga Ora, last year agreed to work with iwi community groups in Mana Whenua on plans to rejuvenate the two suburbs. Mayor Paula Southgate said, My vision, if you like, when I first put together a multi-stakeholder meeting two years ago, 
was to get a complete revitalisation of Enderley and Fairfield. And I think that's something which is uh, quite aspirational. And uh, those of you who listen uh, regularly may recall there is a law change uh, that's coming up that will allow homeowners and landowners, I should say, in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington and Christchurch build up to three storeys without resource consent. So it'll be interesting to see uh, the Kainga Ora has signalled that the 100 existing state properties could be replaced by 300 new dwellings by 2024. And that's that's good news uh, where, where they can... Uh, get these things off the ground and get them going. So I wish them good good luck on that. And it'll be interesting to see if they are able to keep those people in place or they may have to shuffle them around while work is being done. We'll see how, how that goes. So we're going to have a little bit of a change of tack now. We're going to look at what's happening in the market. As mentioned earlier in the program, it's interesting because I actually did a video recently um, on a Facebook page talking about how to try and understand what's going on with the real estate market amidst all the headlines and how many of the headlines give an indication that seems way worse or way more sensationalised than what is really happening in the market. And that's why uh, I'll give you some examples of these today just to have a look at. And how bad is everything really? And let's look at this in context for homeowners because a lot of them are about house prices and what's going to happen. Most homeowners in the country over the last at least two years have had very high rises in their values of their homes. We know that. And here, here in Manawatu, Wanganui, approximately 30% a year, year after year for two years was uh, pretty amazing. So many of these headlines then talk about the house price market cooling, which might be simply the rate in which price is going up is reduced. So if they were going up 30% and then they're going up 20%, that would be considered that the house, housing market is cooling or if it went from 20 down to 10 or 10 down to zero. So if they're using words like that house prices are um, cooling, then that's something to, uh, to consider. Where they are saying um, house prices dropping, you need to decipher that a little bit. Are they talking about asking prices dropping, which is simply a reaction of... Uh, expectations of owners not being at that 30% or 20% level and then them realising actually we need to bring our asking prices down. Or is it median house prices which are based on statistics? Median house prices is a better measure of uh, many measures as to how things are going. Median house prices is, or average house prices is also good, Uh, can talk in different areas about what is changing a little bit more accurately. So let's start with this article, and I'll remind you of of some of those definitions as we go. This article from Stuff, Susan Edmonds, early May, says, House price falls the biggest since the global financial crisis, CoreLogic says. So parts of the country are experiencing house price falls of the sort not experienced since the global financial crisis, CoreLogic says. So there we've um, digested already that it's only parts of the country. A property research firm said Auckland average property values fell 1.6% month on month in April. Wellington's were down 1.5% and Dunedin's down 07 
Christchurch was the only main centre with a monthly price increase, lifting 0.5%. And just as an aside, Christchurch is the most affordable large centre in the country, although feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but that is my understanding on that. So compared to three months earlier, Auckland house prices edged up slightly, while Hamilton's and Wellington's were down 2%. Dunedin prices were down almost 3%, and the biggest drop for more than 13 years. So again, on the back of very large rises, you know, drops are inevitable, but it's only drops from where they have been. So where was the biggest fall since the global financial crisis? Wellington. And its price weakness was led by Lower Hutt and Upper Hutt, down 3% and 2.6% in a month, respectively. Now that's, uh, you may recall, if you've been watching the market, that Wellington actually became, at one stage, more unaffordable in a number of measures than, than Auckland for a period there. Is it surprising it's coming back a bit? No, it's not. So nationwide house values were down 0.8%, uh, and... CoreLogic said it was the first decline recorded in the, since the country came out of COVID lockdown in August 2020. So um, slightly good news if you're looking to buy, down 0.8 of a percent. That's not, not a heck of a lot compared to the, where they have been going. So affordability, according to Nick Goodall, CoreLogic's head of research, that's the key constraint on the market at the moment, the affordability, because rising interest rates were affecting the number of people who could borrow and how much they could afford. Anyone who is refixing their mortgages at present would see a big increase in the rate that they are charged. Now, I refixed a mortgage last week, went from, uh, and don't laugh at this first amount, went from 2.9, uh, 2.19% to 4.45%. Now, that's a doubling, uh, and that means that the payments have to pay on that particular mortgage double. So that it's pretty, pretty tricky for people who have bought recently uh, or coming off a one-year fixed term as to where those have changed. So the other thing that's affecting the market at the moment is tighter credit availability due to the greater scrutiny on borrower expenses through the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act, changes made in December, and a tighter loan-to-value ratio restrictions. So the, the government, in trying to slow things down, has removed a lot of first-home buyers from the market um, and investors to a certain extent, and even people wanting to upgrade or downsize their existing homes uh, are affected, but they're probably the ones who are finding it maybe easiest to to meet their needs. So it'll be interesting to see where the market goes in, in the near future. Manawatu Wanganui is not mentioned in this article at all, uh, and uh, I'm not saying that's intentional, it just happens to be not mentioned. And Manawatu Wanganui market is still strong. So the next headline says, a larger correction remains a possibility, Reserve Bank says, of falling house prices. Now the, again, it's an interesting headline, so a larger correction than, than what? Than 0.8%? I mean, that's not a, a very big correction uh, from the last article. So let's just see what the Reserve Bank says. They say that recent borrowers are most exposed to rising interest rates and declining house prices as a larger correction in the property market remains a possibility. And this is from the Reserve Bank's latest financial stability report. 
The half-yearly report, which covers matters relating to the soundness and efficiency of the financial system, said New Zealand's financial system was well-placed to support the economy and remained robust in the context of significant global economic challenges. That's good news. But recent development means the near-term risks to the financial system have increased. Key challenges they see facing the economy include rising interest rates and inflation, house prices above what they say is sustainable levels despite recent declines, and the ongoing effects of the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So it's interesting to see that they're also seeing things coming back. Uh, They do repeat a lot of what was in the last article, so I'll just skim read to see if there's anything else uh, to mention there. And uh, only that they say that relative to December 2021 prices, it's estimated that a 30% fall in house prices, I can't imagine that happening, (laughs) could lead to about 10% of all outstanding mortgage debt to fall into negative equity, where the value of the property is worth less than the existing mortgage amount. So it would have to be a massive drop for people to be in trouble. So generally we are in uh, a good state. Although it's interesting how different... Uh, media channels report on the same news. This one from Radio New Zealand says, unsustainable housing market poses risk to economy. This article, they say house prices have declined 4% since their peak last November after rising 48% over two years. So that's really outlines that fundamental difference between the amount they've risen and if they come back a bit, really homeowners are still pretty well off. So they just uh, reiterate some of the comments from the last article. They do say more clearly here in this article that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand said New Zealand's financial system remains well-placed to support the economy, um, although it did not rule out a global recession in the coming months. They do comment about the housing market, though, that it continues to pose a risk to the economy. They say while a gradual decline in house prices to a more sustainable levels is desirable – From a financial stability perspective, a sharp correction remains a plausible outcome that would have broad economic implications. So really, again, the headline would would give you a lot of fear, but comments like that sort of temper that off somewhat, saying that a gradual decline in house prices is desirable and a sharp correction remains plausible. Now, what's plausible? Something that that could happen? It's certainly not possible. It's not at that level. It's just, well, plausible. Something theoretically could happen. And that's where they went on to get that idea that if there's a 30% fall in house prices, that could affect uh, 10% of um, people's outstanding mortgage debts. One thing that's uh, causing changes as well at the moment are the debt-to-income restrictions with regards to – it hasn't actually come into law yet, although it's not far away – but the banks, once they knew this was coming in, started applying this debt-to-income ratio, which made, made it harder for people. No, it's not harder for people to lend. It's that they can lend less. And that, of course, affects the housing market at a certain level as well. Here's another thing that has a less significant impact, but is also in the media. A sharp drop in the number of foreign buyers of New Zealand residential property in the first quarter of this year. And this is from interest.co.nz. So the latest figures from Statistics New Zealand show that just 93 residential properties were purchased by people who were neither NZ citizens or who had residence visas in the March quarter of this year. Now that sounds incredibly 
low, 93, after the focus that the government often puts on uh, people from overseas buying. However, um, really it's not much of a change on the long-term side of things. Uh, for example, we're normally at about the one, 130 to 170. So 93, yes, it's a drop. It's a dramatic drop in terms of those numbers, but it's not large in terms of the market. Okay, this article, going back to uh, uh, Auckland here, an Auckland example, this article from Colleen Hawkes and stuff.co.nz says it's terrifically hard why new builds should be but aren't an option for first-home buyers. So just a few months ago, the bigger Auckland developers were selling dozens of less expensive new homes off the plans each week, a majority to first-home buyers. Many of the vendors didn't need to advertise. The units were signed up as soon as they were available. Today, due to hesitancy and funding issues for first-home buyers, due to some of those changes that I've mentioned previously, that situation has been turned on its ear. Just last month, CoreLogic noted first-home buyers' market share continued to decline and is now at 21%. It's incredible that the things that the government does to try and help people seem to keep having the opposite effect, particularly with housing. Just my opinion, of course. Excluding the lockdown affected April 2020, it's the lowest monthly share since the second half of 2017. Andrew Crosby of Universal Homes is blunt. We are busy with multiple Kiwi Build projects that, given the recent cost increases and price increases, will provide instant and substantial equity to all of those buyers. For everybody else, unfortunately costs to build new are a one-way rocket ship to the moon. He says, lockdown-induced inflation, lack of skilled resource due to no immigration, rules around lending, forever increasing red tape like insulation standards, development contributions and vector rises mean the cost of building is never going to be cheaper than today. But the reality is, no matter how many houses we build, and that includes Kiwi Build projects, we cannot solve the housing crisis if first-home buyers can't afford to buy them. And without a watertight fixed price agreement, and they're rare now, many first-home buyers don't want to take the risk that prices will escalate over the period of the build. Even a few thousand dollars extra could mean they won't be able to fund the difference and could lose their deposit. And with inflation on the rise, those same buyers are wondering what will happen if their mortgage rate increases to the point where it is unaffordable. Leslie Harris, a director of First Home Buyers Club, who has worked in the banking sector for 20 years and now works with those at the grassroots, is frustrated no one in government appears to be listening. Leslie says, theoretically, new builds have the advantage of not needing a 20% deposit. You can get one with 10%. But the problem is, since COVID arrived with supply problems, contracts have changed. What was once a turnkey contract with a fixed price is now looking quite different. There are no cost guarantees. So it becomes a lot harder for first-home buyers to understand or to feel confident in a new build and what can happen. In fact, she goes on to say, and what was once a very attractive option is now looking risky. If costs blow out, the build could go up over the price cap for a KiwiSaver home start grant. If prices go up even by 25000 you might not be able to get the lending from the bank. If the time frame expires and the build takes longer, which is very common, there is no guarantee you'll get the finance promised earlier. I don't want to annihilate first home buyers' confidence, she says. It can be done, but it's terrifically hard. And Harris says the flow-in effect is developers not getting the pre-sale numbers their banks require, so developers' funding can be withdrawn. And so they're starting to see developers in trouble. She says the whole thing needs to be looked at. We need to address the policies and remove the barriers that are in place. 
Why is the KiwiSaver home start cap in Auckland only 700000 What can you buy for 700000 And the income gap, $150,000, is far too low. It is not possible for first-home buyers to save the required deposit on that income. The deposit required for a home today is around four times greater than what it would have been to needing to buy the same house just six years ago. Isn't that sad? I'll say that again. The deposit required for a home today is around four times greater than what it would have been just six years ago. She feels that first home buyers need a break. They need to be they are treated no differently from anyone else looking for a mortgage, but there needs to be a little more wrestle room for them, she feels. The government needs to work with lenders to negotiate some carve outs for first home buyers. Nobody wants to see a first home buyer put at risk or put themselves under too much pressure, but there are blanket barriers to lending that simply don't make sense. Lending should be on a case-by-case basis. We haven't seen a spike in defaults and we're not seeing negative equity. And We know that once buyers get their mortgage are fully committed to meeting payments. The situation, she says, has become worse since Reserve Bank dropped the percentage of low deposit lending by banks from 20% to 10%. In other words, they can't lend as many times. Uh, it would make more sense to reassess that on a regular basis in line with OCR. Harris also believes the $10,000 Homestart grant is too restrictive and a grant should be available to all first home buyers with no earning cap and without the need to have spent three years in KiwiSaver. We're not seeing a serious attempt to address the stumbling box. We might see new Kiwi built houses for first home buyers, but who is actually going to lend to these people, she says. So it's difficult. Harris says the most common way people get into a first home today is either with an extremely high income or they acquire a house through the bank of mum and dad. And you might recall an article I brought to you last week that said that parents now loan more to first home buyers than Kiwi Bank and they're the fifth largest loan provider. And parents loan on average $108,000 and that's going to impact on their retirement and that's another problem that's not too far around the corner. She also says the removal of tax deductibility for an investment property does not appear to have had any positive benefit for first-home buyers. It's early days yet, but we are seeing a jump in rental prices. So it's uh, certainly proving it to be pretty hard. Uh, the Credit, Contracts and Consumer Finance Act, which came into effect on 1st of December 2021, has contributed to the credit crunch. Amendments are expected shortly. They'll remove some demands, including the need to provide evidence of current spending via the banks. Um, You see, the difficulty there is that there are massive fines in place if you lend irresponsibly, and so many institutions have gone incredibly conservative and not lending. Harris says the First Home Buyers Club has found many young people don't realise that a credit card limit is treated as debt. If you have a limit of $10,000 on the card, it will be assumed you owe that much, even if you've never used the card. The average debt that we find with first home buyers is $9,000. And here's the really important part to take away from the show today. Even if you have savings elsewhere, that $9,000 on a credit card could potentially translate to $75,000 less in lending the bank will give to you. So really important to get some good advice there. Chop up the credit card, chop up any of the store cards, and don't use afterpay type services uh, in order to get yourself into the best position to lend. That's all we've got time for this week. It's been lovely having your company here on Property Matters. You can find us at MPR, manor2peoplesradio.nz, or where all good podcasts are found. Just Google Property Matters, Greg Watson, and look forward to catching up with you next week.
If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.